Ah. There we go. Now, now it's time to get the party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin. I'm the rector of St. Francis Anglican Church in Dallas, and this is Matins, number 31. We're continuing uh, reading through Rome's tribute to Anglican orders. Um, if you're interested in getting in at the start of the story, then go back two episodes and start there. Um, before we continue on, if you'd like to uh, get in touch with me or uh, send me a note, you can, of course, comment down below on YouTube or uh, send me an email at frmatkin at priest.com. Uh, please uh, like and subscribe. If you're uh, listening on Apple or Spotify, maybe give us a review, help us get noticed. We'd like to also have an opening prayer before we continue, and this is from the Order for Morning Prayer in the prayer book. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I uh, filmed a tutorial for morning prayer, so I'll be putting that together and putting that out uh, pretty soon. Uh, also, I need to finish up, I did a tutorial for the Eucharist, um, which I kind of drug out over a long time, but I need to, um, I've, I've done all the liturgy part, uh, but I need to do the commentary part, so i got to go back and write out everything, make sure I get all the details um, correct and don't miss anything uh, essential. Uh, so I hope to have that up and running by the end of the summer at least, uh, maybe earlier on in the summer. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings, being ordered by thy governance, may be righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And just as a reminder, uh, we uh, are picking up in chapter 5 of the uh, book uh, by um, uh, Montague Butler, um, Rome's Tribute to, Holy, to Anglican Orders. And so this is not an Anglican uh, view or defense of uh, our apostolic succession, but is rather a kind of a catalog of the positive Roman uh, actions and statements that had been made leading up to Apostolic Curie in 1896, I believe. So we'll pick up in chapter 5 with the testimony of Alphonsus Liguri, Bishop of Agatha, founder of the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer. The testimony of this learned divine and saint of the Roman Church has much value in relation to the subject under consideration, inasmuch as he candidly admits the facts to which we have referred on page 9, and speaks of the prelates occupying sees by virtue of the orders conferred in Ed Edward VI reign as Catholic bishops. It is noteworthy that he makes such admissions in the course of an attack of some vir virulence upon the English church, and does not even hint at any reordination. So, in other words, even though he's attacking the Anglican church, he doesn't say anything about invalid orders that needed to be reordained and so on. And then it begins with a quote from uh, Liguri. Mary, likewise, proclaimed the innocence of Cardinal Pole and requested Julius III to send him to England as his legate. He arrived soon after, and at the request of the king, reconciled the kingdom of Ghent to the church and absolved it from schism 
on the vigil of St. Andrew, 1554. Confirmed in their sees the Catholic bishops, though installed in the time of the schism, and recognized the new sees established by Henry. All this was subsequently confirmed by Paul IV. Which is a remarkable uh, statement and analysis. I would also note that, pay attention to the language, Cardinal Paul reconciled the church. So this is not a matter of a new church, uh, but rather of the church uh, gone into schism being brought back into the fold. In section 4 of the same chapter from which this quotation is given, although Liguri continues his attack on the English church in the reign of Elizabeth, he makes no mention of the nag's head story or of any spurious consecration or ordination, but throughout speaks of the Anglican prelates simply as bishops. And we'll get to this another time, but nag's head is um, kind of a made-up rumor uh, to discredit uh, the succession in England. Bishop Strickland, Bishop of Namur. This bishop is described by Dr. F. G. Lee as, quote, a well-known Roman Catholic prelate accused in his lifetime of Jansenism, but revered greatly after his death for his love of truth, charity, and moderation. He died Bishop of Namur. Bishop Strickland made an inquiry into the question of Anglican orders and having done so, maintained both their validity and regularity. Bishop Henry Stonor, uh, vicar apostolic in England, quote, Bishop Stonor, who was one of those who held the sufficiency of the ordination formularies of the prayer book of the established church, maintained in print that, as far as he had inquired, he was willing to believe that the Church of England ordinations were sufficient and valid. He died, according to the Roman Directory, on March 29, 1756. Monsignor Colbert, Bishop of Montpellier, furnished testimony to the same subject in the Catechism published by his authority for the use of the clergy of his diocese. As follows. Oh, and it's all in French. <laughs> so, you'll have to look at that yourself. Bishop John Milner, uh, Bishop of Castabala, if I say that right, is also counted among those who held the same view. He wrote, She, the Anglican Church, teaches that the orders of her ministers have descended from the apostles and are appointed by God, and that the power given to them in the ceremony of ordination is divine and essentially necessary to her existence. The order of the priesthood is conferred in the following words of Scripture, agreeable to the Roman pontifical. Receive the Holy Ghost, etc. In defending the Church of England against the charge of insidious and latitudinarian principles, Bishop Milner made use of the following remarkable expressions respecting his opponents. If they will not be good Roman Catholics, I am desirous that they should remain good Church of England men, being convinced that thereby the sacred code of revelation will be much less violated, and in the public peace and happiness much more effectually secured. This prelate died on April 19, 1826. Bishop James Doyle, Bishop of Kildare and Leglin, who to this 
who to the day of his death appears to have cherished a strong affection for the Church of England, declared in 1824. This union between the Churches of England and of Rome is not so difficult as it appears to many. And he goes on to express the opinion that the points of difference are apparently not the most important, and that the failure in union has been owing more to princes than to priests, more to state policy than a difference of belief. His sentiments are expressed at a great length in an exceedingly charitable letter on the union of the churches, addressed to Mr. Robinson, Chancellor of the Etchequer, afterward Bishop of or Earl of Ripon, under the date May 13, 1824, and published in the Dublin Evening Post of May 22nd. According to the Roman Catholic writer Oxenham, quote, there is good reason to believe that he did not come forward without the tacit concurrence at least of the Holy See, and the result proved that he was far from speaking for himself alone. In the following year, he made the the opening declaration before a committee of the House of Lords, quote, As a Christian church, possessing a hierarchy and preaching the doctrines of the gospel, I respect it, that is, the Church of England, and esteem it more than any other church in the universe separated from the See of Rome. In 1815, uh, the Reverend P. Gottlightly, a Roman Catholic priest in London, reprinted a long extract of a charge by Dr. Shute of Barrington, the Anglican Bishop of Durham, in the interest of reunion. Of this prelate, Bishop Doyle wrote that when dying, he could depart with the rapturous language of good old Simeon. He added, May the Savior who has left us sorry, the Savior who has left us in the record of his gospel May his own anxious prayer for the union of his disciples promote and prosper the blessed work of Catholic union. So in other words, he was praising uh, the reunion efforts of uh, the Bishop of Durham. Bishop Ryan of Limerick was on intimate terms with Dr. Jeb, Anglican Bishop of Limerick. In addition, however, to his friendship with him, Bishop Ryan, quote, honored him as a Christian bishop and advised him with advised him as fellow laborers in the vineyard of their common lord the anglican prelate on one occasion quote, addressed the people after mass from the altar of the roman catholic church of murrow during his last illness he was publicly prayed for in the roman catholic churches and in his funeral was attended by a procession including the roman catholic clergy with the venerable bishop dr ryan at their head now, if you're not aware, um, the presence of Roman Catholic, uh, not just lay people, but clergy at an Anglican service back in those days um, would have been unheard of, I'm sure. Bishop Peter Baines, vicar apostolic in England, is cited by Dr. F.G. Lee, as well as known by many who are personally acquainted with him, to have held the opinion that Anglican orders are valid. He died on August 6, 1882. Archbishop Murray of Dublin, in a letter to the Bishop of Gloucester in 1839, writes as follows, quote, A church like the established Church of England, which having preserved all that is essential, 
possesses a succession of bishops and pastors, can occupy common ground with our churches, where dissenting bodies have but little hope for a better future. Before a parliamentary committee, the Archbishop expressed his desire for union between the churches of Rome and England, and in a letter to Mr. Aeneas MacDonald, he stated that, quote, were the Church of England people true to the principles laid down in their prayer book, the doctrinal differences, which appear considerable, but are not, would be soon removed. Bishop Strassmeyer, Bishop of Bosnia, may not be unfairly cited as one who leans on the same opinion, although he has not expressly stated it in such explicit terms. Room for something more than conjecture on the subject lies in certain language used by him in his memorable speech at the Vatican Council, afterwards published in Florence under the title, The Pope and the Gospel. In this speech, he he classed the primate of Florence, that is, the Roman primate of Florence, the patriarch of Constantinople, the Greek patriarch, and the primate of England, the Anglican uh, bishop, as on the same footing in the matter of jurisdiction. And that is, from my view, astounding. Uh, Not just a matter of valid orders, but uh, on the matter of jurisdiction, with the Roman idea that all jurisdiction basically flows from the Pope. Although this is a bit earlier uh, at the Vatican Council, before perhaps some of those ideas became more solidified. It says, the following utterances are in more respects, um, the following utterances are in more respects than those touching their present inquiry, not a little remarkable. Quote, precedence is one thing, the power of jurisdiction is another. For example, supposing that in Florence there was an assembly of all the bishops of the kingdom, the precedence would be given to the primate of Florence, as among the Easterns it would be accorded to the Patriarch of Constantinople, and in England to the Archbishop of Canterbury. But neither the first nor the second nor the third could deduce from the position assigned to him a jurisdiction over his colleagues. The importance of the bishops of Rome proceeded not from a divine power, but from the importance of the city in which they have their seat. That which is true in the religious order is the same in civil and political matters. The prefect of Rome is not more a prefect than he is than he of Pisa, but civilly and politically he has a greater importance. This is, of course, tantamount to saying that the Roman Pope and the Greek Patriarch are not more truly bishops than the Archbishop of Canterbury. To the last mentioned, Bishop Strassmeyer concedes the place of precedence among all the bishops in England, and therefore has no doubt as to that prelate's true episcopal character and authority. It will be remembered that a large number of bishops in England are members of the papal communion. Bishop Strassmeyer does not, however, mention an Archbishop of Westminster as having any right of ecclesiastical precedence in this country. It is recorded that at the close of the speech, containing the words which we have quoted, a good many Italians, Americans, and Germans, and a little sprinkling of French and English, surrounded the speaker, and with a brotherly grasp of the hand, showed that they agreed with him in his way of thinking. Pius IX is said to have treated the discourse with contempt, but the speaker does not seem to have lost either position or prestige, 
In the year 1885, we find an elaborate paragraph in the tablet, the leading Roman Catholic journal in England, respecting, quote, the illustrious prelate and patriot, Monsignor Joseph George Strassmeyer, Bishop of Bosnia and Smyrna. We'll go on to uh, section or chapter 6. Yeah. To the testimony of popes, cardinals, archbishops, and bishops may be added that of many other learned Roman Catholics, both clerical and lay. Peter Cudsimius came to England in 1608, and in following the year he wrote of the Anglican Episcopate, quote, With regard to Catholic order, there is a perpetual line of their bishops and the lawful succession of pastors received from the church. Nicholas Sander freely admits that Anglican orders were, quote, confirmed by Cardinal Pole in the case of all bishops which had been made in the former schism. If so, they were Catholic in their judgment of religion, as well as the six new bishoprics which King Henry had created. As this confirmation was made in obedience to an instrument set forth, as we have already shown, in the Pope's own name and authority, the very mention of the circumstance may be accepted as Dr. Sanders' record of the reality of the orders of the English Church. And then he has a note here at the bottom, it is a deeply interesting fact that many priests of the English Church, admitted to the Church of Rome, have firmly and persistently refused to be reordained, and some of these have, notwithstanding, been permitted by their superiors to continue the exercise of sacerdotal functions in the Church of their adoption. The very Reverend Christopher Davenport, uh, Father Francis of St. Clair, joined the Franciscan order at, uh, at a place that I have no idea how to say, <laughs> in 1617, and was Principal Professor of Theology at Douai in 1626. He appears to have been very highly regarded in his order, in which he held the responsibility of English provincial no less than four times. He was the author of 18 works in theology. Answering objections made against the Anglican form of ordination was in uh, sorry. Answering objections made against the Anglican form of ordination as insufficient, he refers to the Greek Catholic form as being unlike the Roman and adds, quote, "No one however denies that they are rightly ordained because they have the substance the same appears to be the right conclusion respecting the Anglican form used in this country. And further, quote, the imposition of hands is essential by the consent of nearly all writers, which is in this office duly observed, End quote. Father Davenport explains that in the Anglican consecration, the archbishop pronounces the words with the imposition of hands of several bishops. The Reverend Serenus Cressy, convent of St. Gregory in Douai, Paris, in 1653, published the second edition of a work called Exmologis. Under the headings given in a table of contents at the end of the book, the following appear. See section 1, or section 1, chapter 9, chapter 9, a reflection upon the Calvinist and Lutheran churches. Their first disadvantage in comparison with the English church. Section 1, Chapter 10, Apparent Want, Yea, Renouncing of a Lawful Succession of Ecclesiastical Governors and Teachers Among Lutherans and Calvinists. In the second of these chapters, Father Cressy writes, quote, 
A second thing, wherein the Lutherans and Calvinists agreed to disagree with the Church of England, was their want or lack of bishops, and by consequence of a lawfully ordained clergy. This was an inconvenience, so much more the more hard to be digested by me, and which deserved neither excuse nor commiseration, because by reason of their want of bishops uh, at their first pretended reformations, they came to that shameless uh, to seek to palliate this defect by a desperate condemning of the order itself as tyranny and usurpation crept into the church against the express order of Christ and his apostles. And though they, especially the French Calvinists, might afterward have in some sort remedied this defect by receiving a clergy by the ordination of the English bishops, an interesting comment, the Protestants could have gotten back the apostolic succession through the Anglicans. And it says, whereto they have been earnestly solicited, as namely by Bishop Morton, notwithstanding they utterly persisted in the utter refusal of suffering this important disadvantage to be cured, which perverse spirit of theirs uh, elegantly describes in these words, and it's in Latin, that is, the thing which ye once unreasonably did to avoid the imputation of having been ignorant ye still maintained. Yea, to that ridiculous impudence they have arrived in Scotland not many years since as to admit one to public penance in the church only for having been a Protestant bishop. In other words, Father Cressy regarded it as a, quote, ridiculous impudence for these folk to deny that the office of the man whom they persecuted was of divine appointment. It is important to note that his sentiments as to the validity of Anglican orders were shared by the superior of his order and by seven professors of theology, including the master of the faculty in Paris, prior to his becoming a religious priest of the Holy Order of St. Benedict, he had been priest of the English Church, but he was never reordained. He died on August 10, 1674. The late learned Roman Catholic layman Mr. Charles Butler says of him, quote, Among the Catholic writers in the reign of Charles II, none was more distinguished. The Reverend Dr. Stephen Goh, an oratorian, was, prior to his succession to the Roman Church, chaplain for some time to Charles I. So he was an Anglican first and, and converted. He adhered to the conviction that his priesthood was good and valid, and the Archbishop of Paris, being of the same opinion, allowed him, without reordination, to exercise the functions of a priest in the archdiocese. His case was, however, submitted to the doctors of the Sorbonne, of whom there were many, who for four months investigated the subject of Anglican ordinations. They finally came to the formal decision that they were both valid and sufficient, and therefore declared in favor of Dr. Goh's priesthood. Father Goh, therefore, continued to exercise uh, sacerdotal duties with the consent of his ecclesiastical superiors, and his right to do so was openly upheld by the Vicar General of the Archdiocese of Paris and the Reverend Abbe Damas. An opposition arose among a party of ill-formed malcontents, and the whole question was again referred to a select commission of other doctors of the Sorbonne but with exactly the same result. 
the unequivocal judgment being that Anglican orders were valid, and that Dr. Goh, therefore, was a true priest. The value of such testimony may be estimated when it is remembered that the decision was passed by what a learned writer on the subject calls, quote, the most renowned and competent theological school of Latin Christendom. So that we got a positive verdict from two different uh, collection of scholars at the Sorbonne. The rever very Reverend John Skidmore, uh, prior of St. Gregory, titular prior of the Catholic Church of Canterbury, abbot designate of Sismar in Germany. He was sent by the Holy See in 1632 with the express sanction of King Charles I to obtain information about the English Church. He had communications with Archbishop Laud, of which frequent mention is made in the state papers, and reported that the greater part of the Anglican Articles of Faith are truly orthodox. He drew a clear line between the Protestantism of dissent, that is, I guess, the nonconformists, and the faith and usage of the English Catholics, for after mentioning many points of agreement with the points of doctrine in the Roman Church, he added, quote, they, the Anglicans, reverence the primitive church and unanimous consent of the ancient fathers and all the traditions and ceremonies which can be sufficiently proved by testimony of antiquity, admit a settled lit liturgy taken out of the Roman liturgy, distinction of orders, bishops, priests, and deacons, and distinct habits from the laity, and diverse other points in which no transmarine Protestants do agree. Father Skidmore died in 1635. The Reverend uh, Greg Gregorio Panzani, uh, Oratorian of Arezzo, subsequently Bishop of Melito, was sent in 1634 by Pope Urban VIII to negotiate with Charles I, the English government and the bishops, with instructions to report upon the condition of the English Roman Catholics and the established church. He was received very favorably by the king and had several interviews also with Sir Francis Windeback, Secretary of State, and Bishop Montague. The king expressed much regret at the separation of the Roman and Anglican churches, and Sir Francis informed Father Panzi, Panzani that but for the Jesuits and the Puritans, an, a union might be easily effected. Father Panzani replied that, with regard to the Jesuits, quote, it is not improbable that His Holiness would sacrifice their interest in the prospect of so fair an acquisition. Bishop, Bishop Montague assured him that both the archbishops, the Bishop of London, Dr. Juxton, and all other members of the Anglican Episcopate, but three, were favorable to a union of the churches. Panzani reported that the whole circumstances, sorry, he reported the whole circumstances to his superiors at Rome and was directed to convey the expression of their satisfaction to the English bishops, assuring them that His Holiness, quote, would make no unreasonable demands, but content himself with the essentials of his primacy and such privileges as were annexed to it um, out of jure divino. Cardinal Barberini warmly expressed his approval of the proposed union, and Panzani wrote to his eminence on July 16, 1636, saying that he was content to grow gray 
in accomplishing it. The following brief passage from this priest's memoirs bears on the subject under consideration of the present treatise. Quote, In this service, that is the Anglican service, it must be allowed when it came to be regularly recognized. Sorry. In this Anglican service, it must be allowed when it came to be regularly organized. There was a decency and dignity well adapted to the sedate and philosophic character of the English people. The churches were the same. The orders of the hierarchy remained the same. The Very Reverend Peter Walsh, Order of St. Francis, Professor of Divinity. Of Dr. Matthew Parker, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, Father Walsh writes to the effect that he admits the valid and canonical character of his orders, and says, You must not persuade yourself that I do at all reflect upon his ordination. He adds, quote, Were I to deliver my opinion of this matter, or were it to be my purpose to speak thereof, I would certainly feel myself bound in conscience, for anything that I know yet, to concur with those who doubt not the ordinations of bishops, priests, and deacons in the Protestant Church of England to be at least valid. I have withal observed nothing of truth alleged by the objectors which might in the least persuade any man who is acquainted with known divinity or doctrine of our present school, besides what Ricardus Archimaeus long since writ, and with the annals of our Roman Church, unless peradventure he would turn so frantic at the same time as to question even the validity also of our own ordinations in the said Roman Church. To this view, as to the validity of Anglican orders, Father Walsh steadily adhered. The following expressions are from his later writings. Speaking of preventing uh, giving offense to Roman Catholics by the attitude taken up by him, he says, quote, Where they shall meet the titles of right or most illustrious and most reverend given by me to the Lord Bishop of Lincoln, I desire them to consider my reasons. I had about twelve years since, in the preface to my history of the Irish Remonstrance, publicly, in print, acknowledged my opinions to be that the ordinations of the Protestant Church of England is valid, meaning it undoubtedly to be so, according to both the public doctrine of the Roman Catholic schools themselves and the ancient rituals of all the Catholic churches, Latin and Greek, nay, and to those rituals of all the Oriental heterodox churches too, as Marinus, a learned oratorian, hath recorded them. He gives in a full letter of the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Ganesi and Primate of Poland to Archbishop Shelton of Canterbury, dated July 11, 1675, uh, beginning, well, it goes into a Latin quote, The letter is one of inquiry about the ancient privileges of the See of Canterbury. Again, Father Walsh writes, We do not, so far as I comprehend, deny that they, the Anglican prelates, be true bishops. And then last one, very Reverend Pierre Selenartz, professor of history in Louvain, shared the same opinion. In 1684, His Eminence Cardinal Cassanta, Casanata wrote to the Bishop of Castoria to know what he thought on the subject of Anglican orders. The Bishop consulted his two friends, Selenart and Arnaud. Selenart replied that the fact is out of dispute, 
and maintained that the form used in the King Edward's ritual contained all that was necessary for ordination. So, uh, a a bit more, and uh, we'll pick up next time with uh, section uh, 7, or chapter 7, and we'll see you then. God bless.